We continue the shear in Nevi'im, Nach, Suvim, story of Daniel. We started this just for a moment, the last shear. We'll go back to the beginning again, a few sentences we started. Case where Nebuchadnezzar had a second dream. This dream frightened him even more than the first because in this dream he remembered his dream but had no idea of the interpretation. So he called to all his wise men, his magicians, advisors. He told them the dream, and of course none of them had any idea whatsoever as to what the dream implied. Till finally he realized that the one person that could interpret it properly and correctly was Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Daniel and told Daniel his dream. He related the dream to him, begging him to interpret it. And he said the dream was as follows. He had seen a very tall tree, a tree that was so high it reached up to the heavens. The roots were deeply embedded in the ground. The tree could be seen from every point in the globe. Everywhere in the world, this tree, the beauty of this tree could be seen. The branches of the tree, the leaves were all of extreme beauty. The fruit of the tree was so much in abundance that it could supply nourishment for the entire world. In the shade of the tree, because of the immensity of its size, they could rest in its shade all the animals of the world. And in its branches, that could set all the birds that existed. This was the tree he saw. Then, suddenly, he saw an angel descend from heaven, an angelic figure. This angel, in a mighty roar, issued an order, cut that tree down and chop off the branches, release all the leaves from the tree, scatter all the fruits, and animals and birds. Leave only the original roots and trunk of the tree, and that too tied down to the ground with a chain of iron and copper. And let these roots and trunk be washed daily with the dew that sets, and let this trunk, this lowest part of the tree, eat the grass of the field together with the animals of the forest. Remove the human heart that this tree possesses in its place and stall in it a heart of an animal. And so there should pass over this tree seven years until all will know that to Hashem belongs the power, the ruling power, the kingdom, whomever Hashem wants. He gives this authority. Whoever Hashem wants, he removes the authority from him. These were the words of the angel, and up to this point was the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. When he completed his statement, he completed relating this to Daniel, Daniel stood there in a state of shock hearing this. He waited a few moments without replying at all to Nebuchadnezzar. Again, Nebuchadnezzar appealed to Daniel to interpret this dream. Finally, Daniel replied, looking at the king, he said, apparently this dream is a very sad one, a tragic one. It implies 
do. So he said, this dream should befall your enemies. Whatever this dream intends should befall your enemies. And then he began to relate the interpretation of the dream. The question, of course, is, the enemies of the Vuchadnezzar, this evil king, this evil dictator, who had caused the destruction of the first holy temple, who had caused the death of millions of Jews, driven out the balance of the exile, his enemies were the Jews. So why would Daniel say to the Nebuchadnezzar, this should happen to your enemies? It obviously meant the Jews. The answer, let him say, same as the Zayda Kodesh says in many places, that Daniel directed his words to Hashem. But Nebuchadnezzar was misled by the words themselves. Daniel said to Hashem, this should happen to your enemies, meaning the dream should come true on the Nebuchadnezzar. Then he gave the interpretation, the translation of the dream. He said, this tree, this powerful tree that covers the entire world, represents your kingdom. You are the one in whose shade bask all the peoples, different types of people in the world. The animals represent the different types of people, the birds, higher type of people. The fact that the food is enough to supply the whole world shows that you are the one that controls the world's food supply and therefore controls the world. Now, what you saw was that this tree itself, that is you, will be cut down. You are going to lose your kingdom completely. But that's not the extent of the tragedy. Because at the same time, the strangest thing in history will happen to you. First and only time it ever took place. That you will slowly be converted into an animal. Your human heart will be removed from you. You will have the heart of an animal. You will eat the grass of the fields together with animals. You will live with animals. You will lose your senses for a period of seven years. During these seven years, you will even have the mind of an animal. At the end of the seven years, you'll come back to your senses, and you will finally realize that to Hashem belongs the power and not to you. Till now you boast that you are the king of the world, you'll realize that you're only a small item, a small object in this universe, and all the kingdom, all the authority, and all the power belongs to Hashem, the king of kings. It is only then that you come back to your state of being a human again. Now this, of course, is a, a sad item, but there is a solution. The solution for you is any type of tragedy, any type of yusurim, could be redeemed through By giving charity, anyone can be saved from any type of doom that is impending. Stoka tatsumi mavis. Stoka can save a person from different types of death. This means the death of a human, birth of an animal. It can be saved through giving stoka. Therefore, my advice to you is that if you redeem yourself from stoka, you'll be saved from this, this tragedy. Again, the question is, why should Doniel offer this advice to the king? He should be happy that the king would suffer thus, in the first place, to avenge the suffering and deaths of so many Jews, in the second place, to actually teach the Nebuchadnezzar to recognize the kingdom of Hashem. 
So why spare him this type of suffering? The answer is that Daniel felt he could accomplish more by pressuring Nebuchadnezzar to feed the thousands and thousands of impoverished, starving Jews. This was his opportunity that Nebuchadnezzar will be forced to feed them, to give them charity, to sustain their lives. Same time, of course, there is a very serious rule in the halachas, the dinim of Stucca, that if Jews need help for the poor or for the yeshivas, any charitable item, they should not turn to Goyim to solicit alms. You are not supposed to be mezakeh to give the zechus, this privilege of Stucca, of a pure, holy Stucca to the Goyim. It's wrong that they should have a mitzvah that is so great. You're supposed to have faith. Go to the Jews, even if they are poor, they cannot offer that much money. But you could sustain yourself and the poor through the contributions of Jews exclusively. In fact, there are places where it says that it is strictly forbidden. It is very sinful for a person to solicit stucker from Goyim. In this case, then, why did Daniel actually advise Nebuchadnezzar to give stucker to the Jews? Imagine the mitzvah where a person would be able to really feed and keep alive thousands of Jewish poor. Why should this be given to Nebuchadnezzar? The answer is that Daniel felt this was not being taken from him as charity. There was no mitzvah of tzedakah on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. This, by the way, is a very controversial item extremely controversial. I hate to get involved in an argument, the controversy of this magnitude. I certainly won't offer a personal opinion on it, but this is in a way similar to the question that arose years ago, whether the state of Israel should accept reparations from Germany, the Germans, whether it was right to accept money from them to pay for their crimes, to atone for their sins. The argument on the part of those who said that it was right to do so was that this was not atoning for sins. This in no way would erase their sin. This in no way would give them credit for a mitzvah because they were simply returning a tiny portion of stolen articles. They were not returning any lives that they had taken. They were not returning the years of suffering that caused the illness and disease, the broken families, the, the millions of deaths. They're returning in a very tiny measure something which was not theirs. Now, of course, it is an argument. It is a point. And here, too, Daniel felt that the Nebuchadnezzar would not be doing a mitzvah in feeding the poor. He was simply going to be forced in this manner to give back some of the treasures he had stolen from the Jews. There was, of course, an immense amount of gold taken from the base of Mikdash itself. So this would not constitute a mitzvah. At the same time, the Jewish poor would benefit, and therefore he gave him this advice. Nebuchadnezzar was prone in believing the words of Daniel, therefore he accepted the advice, so he set about a steady, standard method of distributing money and food to the Jewish poor. This lasted for a period of 12 months. And of course this was done through his assistants. So most of the time he wasn't present when these rations were doled out. One day at the end of 12 months, he was standing by and he heard a loud tumult. He heard thousands of people assembling, gathering, 
very noisy. He asked the meaning of this noise. He was told this was the time to distribute the money of food to the Jewish poor. And, of course, after a year, a person tends to forget. He forgot about his dream, about what it implied, and he became very angry and said, I worked so hard to build up this mighty kingdom, to conquer all the different lands, to amass a royal fortune. Now I have to give this out to these poor, these paupers, to the Jews especially. I want that stopped instantly. Of course, they ceased to distribute the food to the Jews, and suddenly he was he felt himself drawn out of the palace towards the field. He couldn't resist this power, this magnetic power that was drawing him. He came to the field, he felt his mind beginning to waver, to leave him, become very hazy. Looking down, he was shocked to see that his hair began to grow suddenly very long. His nails grew out to an extreme length like claws. He lost his mind. He remained so for a period of seven years. Now this sounds very familiar, yet it is not that it's familiar. This is the origin. It's the first time it happened, the only time. This is what the Igayan, say La Havdil, the so-called creative artists in Hollywood, would call a werewolf. A transformation from a human to a wolf. Of course, those who heard the stories about these wolves, human wolves, might have felt an admiration for the artist who thought this up. Very unique, very special, very frightening for the children, or for juvenile minds. And even that, even that was not original. We note that all these special ideas, very special ideas, that seemed to be creative, were all stolen from the Torah. We repeat that word, stolen. Very much so, because never did they give credit to its origin. We especially point out a similar case. We point this out with an accusing figure. At the many books, so-called fiction books, written about mermaids, mermen, half fish, half man, as an item of fiction, now which human being, no matter how wise or how imaginative he would be, could think up something as strange as a mermaid. Actual half-fish, half-person, half-human. And of course, it is felt that the author of this story, or this idea, had a very creative mind. When in truth, this is mentioned, written about in very minute detail in the Gemara. And to put a damper on them completely, it is not even fiction. Igamara says that it's very, very true. There is a species in the sea, mermaids and mermen, who are more human than fish. The fact that they are not seen today has no bearing on this item. They were seen in the past, Igamara says, and Igamara would not, Hasbashol, not mention it or waste, waste words and laws on this. There are special dinim that apply to that topic, which we will come to in full detail in our Gemara Shiru eventually. But the proof that they actually did exist, possibly today do, we cannot tell, but they possibly still exist deep in the sea. And this is something which has never been credited to its original place of origin, to the Gemara. Here too, we find this story, the origin of the, the so-called werewolf, and of course, 
we have the origin of Frankenstein monster also in the Gemara, giving it a different name, but that all these ideas come from a much higher source. Now, the Buchanetza was put into a state of a wild beast for a period of seven years. At the end of these seven years, he came back to his senses and he began to look up to heaven. He prayed to Hashem to help him and to give praise to Hashem that only to Hashem belongs everything in this world under the control and will of Hashem does everything function. Then, after he admitted this, said these prayers, he was returned to his kingdom by his followers, by his officers, to his full former status. He was even more power than before. In other words, he was not rejected by them despite what had occurred. This was a sign that in heaven, his words were accepted now, he was being returned to his throne. Following this, he sent letters to all his kingdom, every part of his, every land in his kingdom, letters describing this experience in full detail. No matter how embarrassing it was to himself, he described the full thing with a point stressed at the end of the letter that all should know henceforth that Hashem is the king of kings, the ruler of the universe, and must be accepted as such through the orders of the Muchadnezzar, the king. This was the story of the second dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and eventually Nebuchadnezzar passed away, and his son, Belshazzar, took over the throne. This son, Belshazzar, son of Nebuchadnezzar, was very strong and physically powerful. He was built very big, he had an animal type of build, very fierce. He went out to do battle against Doryovesh, Modai, and Koresh, king of Persia, and he was successful in this battle. Very successful. Of course, winning this battle it meant that he still controlled most of the world, or practically all of it. He decided to celebrate by having a very special feast. It, at this feast, this of course is reminiscent of the feast of Ahasuerus, also controlled the world. At this feast, there was a lot of wine to drink. Again, very similar to the story of Ahasuerus. But in drinking a lot of wine, there was sort of a contest between the king and his leaders, his generals. He wanted to show that he could outdrink them. There are people today who think that they could drink well. They drink like a fish, as they say. Belshazzar, son of Nebuchadnezzar, competed against 1,000 of his giborim, his mighty, powerful soldiers, and he outdrank all thousand. How was that possible? That's the stamina they had then. A very admirable feat. Very great accomplishment. But where he fell through was the fact that the true reason for his celebration, what made him so happy, it was not the fact that he had defeated these vast empires Modai and Poras, but that he seemed to have defeated the Jewish, the Hebrew prophets, who had predicted that the Jews would be in exile in Bovel for a period of 70 years, and then would come the Geula, the redemption. They'd return back to Israel and rebuild the second base of Mikdash. Now, 
he erred in his calculations. The 70 years were not up yet exactly. He thought they were up. And so, seeing that despite the fact that the 70 years had come to a conclusion, that still there was no geula for the Jews, he celebrated as the seemingly sign of a downfall for the Jews. This was worth more to him, brought him more satisfaction than his own material military victories. Now at this celebration, at this feast, he commanded his, his servants to bring to him the golden dishes, golden cups that were taken from the base of Mikdash, from the Holy Temple. They were considered very sacred. They were kept in a sort of museum. He said the time has come. Now that the Jews will not go back to the Holy Temple, the time has come to use them for our purpose. Celebrate drinking wine from those golden cups of the Holy Temple. They were brought forth, and he served these cups of wine to the queen, to his officials, and even to his dog. These holy cups, the kalim of the Besamikdash, that was so sacred, that cannot be touched by any outsider. Here was being drunk by this evil king, in celebration, a Tomei wine, a Tomei type of feast, and making merry at the thought that there was no further hope for the Jews. While drinking this wine, while making merry, very suddenly, out of the thin air, there seemed to come descend from the heavens a hand, five fingers, just the hand alone, moved forward past the king, to the wall opposite the candelabra. The wall was white, white plaster. The hand began to write a message on this wall. The king was transfixed, petrified. He turned to stone in fear, watching this hand write. The hand completed writing the message on the wall. The hand disappeared. The king finally came back to his senses. He cried out in terror, calling to his wise men, asking them to read this message and explain the meaning of it. And of course, there was no one there who could attempt to make out the words. They couldn't read, they could read the words, but they could not tell what it meant. There was no way to interpret those words. They did not make sense. So he stood there in fear trembling. His knees were completely uncontrollable, knocking against each other. This mighty king who could outdrink a thousand powerful men now could not control his knees from making a lot of noise than anyone else, any of the other Gibara. Finally, the queen spoke up, and she said to him, there is one, Daniel, the kingdom, who interpreted a dream for your father, Nuchanetzer, because he is extremely wise, wiser than all the wise men of the kingdom. Perhaps this, too, he can interpret, or most probably can interpret this, but at least you don't have to worry that much because when he interprets it, it might turn out to be something good. And even if it is not good, at least you'll know what it is. You'll know what to be aware of, how to protect yourself. So why be so baffled and in such a state of terror? Call Doniel to solve it for you. Doniel was summoned quickly, and the king said to Doniel, if you interpret these words... I shall give you a king's ransom as a reward. I will load you with so much treasure and so much honor, more than your mind could ever conceive. Leah looked at the writing and he said to the king, you can keep your gifts. And these treasures you can give to others. 
I don't want one copper coin from all of your wealth. And I will read this for you and interpret it for you very gladly. Now, the reason for this hand coming down, this hand of judgment, is that Hashem gave this kingdom to your father. At the time, when your father had the power to kill or to give life, he had all his power over the entire kingdom, and his heart turned away from faith in Hashem. He became so high and mighty, so filled with conceit and egoism, that he stopped believing in a higher power. For this, he was turned into a beast. For a period of seven years, he was removed from his kingdom, and he stayed out in the fields until, at the end of the seven years, he returned and offered thanks and praise to Hashem, recognizing the existence of Hashem. All this you were fully aware of, because you witnessed this. And despite this, when it came to this feast now, instead of giving thanks to Hashem for your victories, you gave thanks to the idols, every form of idol except Lahavdal to Hashem. In addition, you went and dared to commit the sacrilegious act of taking the Caleb of the Holy Temple to use for your impure tummy purposes. Therefore, this hand has come down from heaven, a sign from heaven directly. The hand wrote these words on the wall. The words are words that you cannot read, but because they are written in code. Letters were clear, but they were written in code. To convert the letters you see into the true words, true words are mene, mene, Tekel Ufarsin. It's four words. Bene, bene, counted and counted. Tekel, weighed, Ufarsin, and divided. This means that Hashem has counted your kingdom, counted the years of your kingdom, and counted the time when the kingdom should be removed from you. Tekel, He has weighed on a scale the evil that you have done, you have perpetrated, Ufarsin has decided to divide the kingdom, take it away from you, divide the kingdom among Modai and Poras, there shall no longer exist the kingdom of Babylon. These are the words that should be written. These are the words that are intended by this code, and that is the translation of these words. This you deserve for your evil acts. Despite this, the king was so impressed by Daniel's interpretation that he gave him this large treasure he had promised him. Daniel walked out. That very same night, the ones who Shatzar had defeated, Koresh, the king of Paras, and Daryavesh, both returned unexpectedly. They had mobilized new armies, returned to battle Belshatzar, and invaded the kingdom, broke into the palace, and killed the king in his palace that same night. That same night, Belshazzar was killed. The kingdom taken away, and of course, the new kingdom came about, which later on, as we'll see, returned the Jews to Israel to rebuild, or to build the second base of English. Now, the Gemara tells us, let's study this code. And again, interestingly, we see that the source of code comes from the Torah. 
the fact that there was any type of code is taken from the Torah itself. Because the Gemara tells us what was the code written here, what form did this code take? The words again are Menei, Menei, Tekel, Ufarsin. One Rabbi Dav says that it was written also with four words. Instead of Menei, Menei, Menei is Mem, Nun, Aleph, the letter was written as Yud, Tes, Tof. That's called the code of Atbash, which means that for the first letter of the Aleph base, in its place, we place the last letter of the Aleph base. Number one, for the beginning, is converted to number one of the end. Two, for the beginning, is converted to two at the end. Which means the Aleph for the Tuf, the Beis for the Shin, the Gimel for the Rej, Dalit for the Kuf, Hey for the Tzadik, and so on. So, therefore, the Mem is the letter Yud. Yud Mem. And the Nud is Tes. The Aleph becomes Tuf, the last letter. So, Mem, Nud, Aleph become Yud, Tes, Tuf. The Tekel, Tuf, Kuf, Laman becomes Aleph, Dalet, Chof. And Ufarsin becomes Hey, Vav, Gimel, Tes, Mem, Tes. This is one opinion. Abiyachan says, the simple code was by writing the words backwards. Mune was written instead of Mem, Nun Aleph was written as Aleph, Nun Mem, and so on with the rest of the words. Avashi says it was simply changed by taking the first letter of each word and interposing the changing it with the second letter. Mune became instead of Mem, Nun Aleph became Nun Mem Aleph. The third word, Tekel, Tof, Kuf, Lamed, Became now Kuf Tof Lamed. Hu Farsin, just the first two letters were changed. Instead of Vav Pei, became Pei Vav. Now, one more, Shmuel says the code was written in a different manner. It's interesting to note, usually, that the story of Yeshua Ben Yechoizal's ascent, the Zayda Kodesh, the story of how he ascended to heaven and spent a long period of time there, during which time, his request was to have certain problems or questions he had answered by the Rish Mesifta. That is the Dean, the head of the Mesifta, Yeshiva in heaven. The head of the Mesifta in heaven, the very famous angel, the chief angel in heaven. And this Malach, this angel, who heads this Yeshiva, has a very select group who are admitted to that Yeshiva. However, when a person, during a person's lifetime, even if he is a tzaddik, it's very difficult to ascend to heaven. If you go to heaven or attend a yeshiva like that, it's extremely difficult. Yet in this case of Shemini Choyzal was so great that when he came to heaven, the Zayde Kodesh says that the souls in heaven of this yeshiva were especially appointed to serve him there. For some reason, he did not enter into the yeshiva itself because he was not prepared to do so for some reason. But these souls were appointed to deliver to him messages from the yeshiva. Whatever he requested was to be granted to him. Any information he wanted to know was to be given to him. And so the questions he asked were very strange ones, that is, very deep ones. As, for example, one of the questions which he dwelt a long time was the true meaning, not the ordinary meaning, but the hidden meaning of why there exists a thing like echoes. What is the reason for an echo? And we have the Kerl Yoshar, regular voice, regular sound. Why is there an echo at times, a sound, the same sound that returns? Of course, those who understand the Svidas, 
Chesed, Gula, Chesed Din, or understand that Din is an Indian of Chesed, return of a sound. But naturally, in this case, this went much deeper. To prove this was not simple, Shumi Choyzel said he wants this because this was part of the wisdom that even King Solomon could not achieve. He wanted that which King Solomon could not get. Shumi Choyzel was so great, he'd already achieved all the wisdom of King Solomon and wanted to go beyond that. And this was granted to him, and a little bit to us too, because the answer is written in the Zayda Kodesh for anybody who wants to read it. Another case that he dwelt on at length was the description of Gen paradise, for women. What do women have in Gen What type of Gen do they have? And the answer given at length, described at length, for the Noshim Tzitkoniyas, how each one has her own yeshiva. We can imagine that those yeshivas, like the ones headed by Miriam Hanaviya and Vor Hanaviya, the great women of history, where it is written that Moshe Rabbeinu visits these yeshivas regularly, especially the one of Basia, Basia Maspara, Basia, the one who rescued Moshe Rabbeinu, was one of the very few who never died physically. She was taken up to heaven alive as a reward for rescuing Moshe Rabbeinu. You can read about this in the Zohar College someday <laughs> in detail. The description of the Gadeidin for women. Again, one item that was brought out in detail too was this question about the handwriting on the wall. Exactly in what form was this written? Now, the answer there is according to one of the four answers of the Gemara. One of these four is the one that the Zohar Kodesh states was the actual case. Now, of course, this does not refute the other three. The Gemara tells us that all the words of the Gemara are true. They're all the word of Hashem. Just that this apparently has a deeper meaning to it. And this is the one that the Zohar Kodesh states was the manner in which it was written. The way it was written was, instead of having the Kale of Farsin, which is four words, they were combined into three words, three equal words of five letters each. total of these original four words are 15 letters. And here they're divided into three equal parts of five letters each so that you had the first, second, third letters of each of the four words in order, and then the second one in order following that, third one, and so on. Now, for example, Benei, Benei, the Kale of Farson, you have the first letters of Benei, Benei, the Kale of Farson, Mem, Mem, Tov, Vov. First word, therefore, had Mem, Mem, Tov, Vov, then it had the letter Samach, too, and because you have three letters left over at the end of a Farson. First one of those three letters is Samach. Second letter, the second word, consisted of the second letters of these four words, which were Nun, Nun, Kuf, Reish, and the second letter of the last three letters left over in the Farsim. That word was Nun, Nun, Kuf, Reish, Yud. Third word was the third of the four letters, plus the last letter of those three, which were Aleph, Aleph, Lamed, Reish, Nun. This, of course, was such a code that no one could break the code at that time. Today they're smarter at breaking codes, cinch. But let him try to interpret these words. Now, the Farshia Zaydek Kodesh say that when the Zaydek Kodesh tells us this, it meant that to Daniel these words could be seen very clearly. How could he make out the words "benet benet the kale of Farsin" if you have to read 
select the letters from each one of these three words. We go back again. The answer is that the words, they were read downwards. In other words, the three lines, but not three words, but not straight order, but three lines. The top word is mem, mem, tof, vov, samach. Next one is nun, and so on. But reading down, you have menei, second line is menei, tekel, ufar, sin. Those five lines, you can read the words in perfect order. No one would think of reading it that way. They read it straight, so they had three words. But Daniel, reading it downwards, like how do you read Chinese, was that smart, and he could know about that language too, was able to read the words in a proper order. The main thing, of course, was to interpret them properly, and this interpretation proved, of course, a very famous expression for all time. That when a person is warned about something they should be wary of, uh, an impending punishment or suffering, it is called the handwriting on a wall. Those who can foresee, foresee through faith, the belief that there is punishment for crime, to them this handwriting on the wall is very clear. Because of this handwriting on the wall, they will abstain from committing sin. For those who don't, the others can warn them about the evil results that come to those who commit the sin. Now, this story, of course, is intended to show that though there are kings in history and kingdoms who have attacked and persecuted Jews, at no time does anyone actually get away with it. Even during his lifetime, even if we don't see it, the worst of these tyrants received their just due. For example, we take the one in our time, Hitler Machimo, was obviously burned alive, destroyed, did not meet an actual death in his bunker. Now, he met a, a very sad type of finish, very happy one for us, but not really happy because this in no way could make up for the losses that we suffered. And of course, this in no way was his punishment. The punishment first began after he died. But we see that any person who attacks the Jews must die by the sword, must die a horrible death, and must suffer even during his lifetime. Because a Russia Gomor must suffer in this world too. And it's this point that most sadly is not seen by Goyim. The Goyim don't realize or they refuse to realize and accept the fact there is a Hashem who exacts retribution for all crimes, especially those against his people, the Jews. And as the Gemara says, that this retribution, this punishment is so severe, and even though all those evil leaders in the past are now suffering in Gehenna, that is not sufficient. When Mashiach comes, Hashem is going to bring them all out of Gehenna, assemble them in front of the Jews and Moshiach, retry them in a most embarrassing manner for them, and give them a new everlasting punishment. This we hope to see with our eyes. Very shortly, with the coming of Moshiach, we will realize the Geula Shlema, the Yeshua Shlema for the entire Kali Yisrael. Be'esem Chakali Yisrael, Be'esem Chakali Yisrael, Be'esem Chakali Yisrael,